there's a, a phrase that became popular during World War II. At the time when Hitler and the Nazis had overrun Paris and had a stranglehold over Eastern Europe. The Axis powers had pressed so far into North Africa in the south and to the north up into the fjords of Norway. Their ally to the far east, the Empire of Japan, was busy island hopping its way across Southeast Asia. And then, as the smoke continued to billow from the stacks of split-open battleships, and as oil leaked out into the warm waters of Pearl Harbor, the American military might vowed to throw at the enemy everything but the kitchen sink. Everything but the kitchen sink. It's a phrase that means like anything and everything, anybody and everybody, the whole enchilada, everything but the kitchen sink, everything under the sun, theoretically anything possible, the whole kit and caboodle. And you know, when I, I look at our passage today in 1 Timothy chapter 6, I was reading it and it kind of reads like, everything but the kitchen sink. I mean, just take a look. It says, uh, it's all about how to treat others, how to teach, how to learn, how to deal with money, how to deal with love, how to have true godliness, true faith, true life, what to pursue, what to avoid, what's most important. And today, I feel as we continue our sermon series, The Good Fight, we can kind of get lost in everything but the kitchen sink because there's so much there to explore. There's so much that can take us in all these different directions. But I want to do something today and ask God to clarify. Maybe just that one thing that we need to walk away with today. Maybe just that one thing that we desperately need to apply to our lives today so that we could walk out of this place as changed people. So I invite you to pray with me. Let's allow God to enter in and do his work. Jesus, we invite you into this time. And we ask God that you speak to us directly. We want to hear from you today. So quiet the noise, the distractions, the plans. We want to hear from you. Speak directly to our hearts, God, our minds, our lives, so that we can be passionate, world changers for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul, a church leader, a missionary, a church planter, an apostle, he wasn't always so. He was once an enemy of the church, a persecutor of the church. He wanted to extinguish the church and the followers of the way. That's what they called the early Christians. But he experiences a radical life change, transformation, when he meets Jesus. It totally changes the trajectory of his life. And here he is writing after becoming a Christian, after following Jesus for some time, he's writing to his young protege in the faith a man by the name of Timothy. And this is what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. 
all slaves. I told you, it's everything but the kitchen sink. It's got anybody and everybody, anything and everything. But it continues the conversation that we started last week in chapter 5, in which we explored how the house churches in the ancient Roman Empire were assembled with mothers and fathers and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and widows. And how could we forget? How could we leave out one-third of the population, slaves. And so Timothy continues, or Paul continues in 1 Timothy, all slaves should show full respect for their masters so they will not bring shame on the name of God and his teaching. If the masters are believers, that is no excuse for being disrespectful. Those slaves should work all the harder because their efforts are helping other believers who are well-loved. Teach these things, Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey them. Nothing like a white dude talking about slavery. Like, I've got my work cut out for me, and I know that these topics are hot-button issues in our society today, and we get all awkward and weird when they come up. Oh, well, we'll just talk about it anyways. Slavery in the New Testament in the first century in the ancient Roman Empire was vastly different than the slavery on the shores of America. It was vastly different than what we might call New World slavery. New World slavery and even the slavery we still see today, it was vastly different than the first century New Testament ancient Roman Empire context. In the ancient Roman Empire, it was based on economics as opposed to ethnicity or race. In the New Testament context, economics. The biggest source of slaves were actually prisoners of war. They weren't one race or one ethnicity of individuals. They were taken from all around the Mediterranean world, all different types of people from all different walks of life, many of them prisoners of war. But what Paul is doing here in 1 Timothy, as he not only mentions slaves, but he directly addresses the slaves, that says something huge. It says something huge in a world where slaves were just viewed as like living tools. No, Paul addresses them directly. That is something huge about Christian community. Christian community was very different than most social groups in the ancient Roman Empire. And here's why. Christian community, it included everything, not everything but the kitchen sink, but everything and the kitchen sink. Everybody and anybody, anyone and anything, Jews and Greeks and Gentiles and whoever you might be, rich and poor, male and female, slave and free. And you know what they did? Social standing meant nothing in their gatherings. Meant nothing. They would eat at the same table, share the same meal, call one another brother and sister, even if, in fact, they were master and slave. What I think Paul is getting at here is, is that though you may be slaves at the bottom rung economically of society, though you may be slaves, don't think for a second that you can't make a tremendous impact in the kingdom of God. Because how you live says everything about what you believe. How you live says everything about what you, what you believe. So love and honor 
Unfortunately, Paul's words, I think, have been taken backwards throughout history to propagate and promote this vile institution of slavery, of owning an individual. Unfortunately, it's been taken, I think, backwards because if you actually read Paul's words in context and all of them throughout the New Testament, I think he's actually laying the groundwork for the eventual eradication of slavery. But as it were, verse 3 says, some people may contradict our teaching by the way they live, by the way they teach, or by the way they warp these words from Paul, like some 1,500 years later, for example. But these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life, one that's characterized by the things of God, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. Anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. This stirs up arguments ending in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicions. These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt, and they have turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. It weighs uh, 396 pounds. It's shown in a silicone bronze light finish, it says, with a choice of a, a basket strainer or like a, a, some other type of plug. But it's this finish that will change with time and touch and use. Uh, it says rush order two to four weeks can be shipped to your place. Um, I click on, on write a review and it says be the first to write a review because there are none. Because it costs $21,899 for a kitchen sink where you put dirty dishes. It doesn't even wash them for you. But you can spend $21,899 to hunch over a sink all the time in the world doing what nobody wants to do. It just sits there, $21,899. It just sits there collecting E. coli, norovirus, salmonella, and hepatitis A. In fact, your kitchen sink contains more fecal bacteria than a flushed toilet. And for an easy price of $19.99, nope, $200, nope, not a chance, for an easy payment of $21,899, it's yours. Visit DiscountRockyMountainHardware.com for more details. I would hate to see RockyMountainHardware.com if this is the discount site. Whatever, whatever model this is, I don't know, KS4422, uh, farmhouse, deep, side sink, sink. I think this is actually the most expensive sink 
on the market. At least that's the most expensive one that I could find on Google. And, and you're probably thinking like, like me, like who in the fill in the blank or what kind of fill in the blank pays for this type of thing where you put dirty dishes? But yeah, yeah rich people, right? Clearly, uh, or people severely in debt. But you think about the people who are able to afford something like this. Man, they must have it good, right? They probably got private jets. They probably got helicopters, bowling alleys in their house. They probably got a tennis court, a basketball court. They, they've probably got like Maseratis and Ferraris and Lamborghinis and Luigi's and Donatello's and Michelangelo. Clearly, I don't know cars. They've probably got swimming pools, saltwater pools with sharks in them. They probably got robots doo -doo -doo -doo, like doing laundry. Maybe the robots are the ones doing the dishes in the $21,899 kitchen sink. Wouldn't that be nice? Hmm. Wouldn't that be nice? I mean, we look all the time on our Instagram feed and our Facebook. We see the highlight reels of our, our friends and family and just strangers that we follow who have like these pimped out places, right? Like these rides that look so good. And we all want that. And we're like, man, I, I, I wonder what that would be like. That would be nice. But you know what? If you can read this, KS442 Deep Side Sinks Farmhouse Sink. If you can read that, you're more fortunate than one billion people in our world today who cannot read. Hmm. If you woke up this morning with more health than illness, you're more fortunate than the million who won't survive the next seven days. And you have access to health care. If you've never experienced the danger of battle, the loneliness of imprisonment, the agony of torture, or the pangs of starvation, you're more fortunate than the 500 million people in the world who have. If you can attend any meeting that you want, religious, social, political, you're more fortunate than three billion people. If you have access to safe drinking water, you're more fortunate than 2.2 billion people. Access to a toilet, 4.2 billion. Basic hand-washing facilities, just access. Not like in your own home or even in your neighborhood, but just like access somewhere in an, a close region. You're more fortunate than 3 billion people. If you have food in the fridge, clothes on your back, a roof over your head, and a place to sleep, you're richer than 75% of the world. If you have money in the bank, in your wallet, or spare change in a dish someplace, you're richer than 92% of the world. And if your family income is $50,000 or more a year, your entire family, you're richer than 99% of the world. Maybe it's time that we think about contentment. I know like you accountants are probably like, well, relatively speaking, like, uh, whatever. Shut up. Shut up. The reality is like, we're here. We're not in Bangladesh. We're not in Indonesia outside of Bali in the cool surf spots. We're here. We're not. We're not one of these who make, make ends meet just by scraping by. 
Maybe it's time to come to terms with contentment. I think true godliness with contentment, as it says in verse 6, is being satisfied, period. Ah, but you know what? I, I, uh, I really have always wanted to. Contentment is being satisfied, period. Ah, but you know, I, I'm, I'm right here, and I really, really wish I was over that contentment is being satisfied, period. Ah, but you see, the, the situation is such that contentment is being satisfied, period. Ah, but the struggle that I'm dealing with, contentment is being satisfied, period. Ah, but I've always wanted and desired to have that contentment is being satisfied, period. Satisfied in God over and above, despite every circumstance and mood. Three of the most dangerous words, three of the most, I think, toxic words. If I just, if I just, and you fill in the blank, if I just had, then what? If I just had a $21,899 kitchen sink, then I could be severely in debt and still have to wash dishes. <laughs> but apply the logic to your own situation. If I just had blank, then what? Think of something right now. Or if I just could, then what? You know, I think this is not healthy to think like this, but I do it like every single day. Like, and it gets me so spun out. It gets me caught up in like a comparison trap. I'm like, oh man, look at him, look at her, look at all this stuff. You know, getting stuck in a comparison trap, get dissatisfied, get all spun out and anything but content. But then in those moments, I have to tell myself, like, Jeremy, bro, some people would love to have your problems. Hmm. Some people would love to have your problems. True godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. It's not private jets or helicopters or vacation homes or sharks in your saltwater swimming pool. Great wealth is true godliness with contentment. Being satisfied, period. Satisfied in the things of God over and above despite every circumstance and mood. And you know what happens when I come to my senses and maybe you probably experienced this. You come to your senses and you realize, like, I've been searching all over the place, trying to find contentment in this and that and whatever, and, but it's not working. But when I find contentment in God and in God alone, it's like, whoa, I've got everything I could ever want or need or desire in God. And it's fulfilling. It's satisfying. It's perfect. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But oh, the things that we would love to add to that list. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. 
But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So money's not evil, but an improper relationship with it is. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. And I wonder how embedded this is in us. The craving for money, the love of money, and how the anxiety. Oh, man. It's like so thick I can feel it in the room. The anxiety over money. how it has pierced us, our minds, our hearts, and our lives. It's like that things that we own begin to own us. The things that we own begin to own us. I remember being in junior high playing video games because that's what you do when you're a junior high boy. You like play video games. And I borrowed this one particular video game from a friend of mine, a Christian friend of mine, uh, because I wasn't allowed to have it. Uh, my mom didn't know about this. She's hearing about this for the very first time, even though she probably already figured it out. But uh, I borrowed this video game from a Christian friend of mine, and it was uh, like you're a criminal in the game and you are engaging in criminal activities and lifestyle. And like you rob banks, you steal cars, you amass all these weapons and you fight other gangs and all this, you know, really training for the criminal lifestyle, right? And uh, I remember playing it for a week, for five days before my mom got home. I got, I got like uh, off of school from like 3.30 to 5.30, I'd play this particular game, learning how to be a criminal. That's not what it's called, but it was rated M for mature. And I realized after five days of playing this game, it occurred to me in eighth grade, I'm like, this is like jacking me up. It's changing how I'm seeing myself and seeing the world. Like we'd be driving to soccer practice and we pull up to a stoplight and there's a, a, a car or a truck next to me and I'm like, I could probably steal that. I'm going to just like open the car door, rip the dude out of there, and just take off. Cops might come. Whatever. I can deal with the cops. Boom, boom, boom. You know, because that's like, this is, this is messing me up. And I was beginning to see how the things that I owned or borrowed from a Christian friend we're beginning to own me. And it's not just video games. It's music. It's television. It's news. It's movies. Oh, it's social media for sure. Like who can't go uh, like 30 minutes without checking like Instagram or Facebook? Just Jim, I guess. Uh, everyone else is like lying today. But I'm like, we are so tied into our devices. Oh, man. And it's like they begin to own us. But you, Timothy, Paul writes, are a man of God, so run from all these evil things and instead change direction to pursue righteousness. That is like a right way of living. 
and a godly life along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you, which you have declared so well before many witnesses. And I charge you before God who gives life to all and before Christ Jesus, who gave a good testimony before Pontius Pilate, that you obey this command without wavering. What, what, what command? Verse 11, 12, run from all these evil things. Pursue righteousness and the godly life, along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you. Then no one can find fault with you from now until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. For at just the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only almighty God, the King of all kings and Lord of all lords. He alone can never die, and he lives in light so brilliant that no no human can approach him. No human eye has ever seen him, nor ever will, until they're in the resurrected state of perfection. All honor and power to him forever. Amen. And that's not just what you say at the end of a prayer. It's a word of confidence and trust. So be it, or let it be so. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to not have good, but to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future, eternally, everlastingly, so that they may experience true eternal, everlasting life. In 1937, when the rise of the Nazi regime in Germany was underway, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian and pastor, he published a very controversial countercultural work called Nachfolge. It literally means following. When all the world, it seemed, everything but the kitchen sink was following, seduced by the wealth and the power of the Third Reich, even when the church itself was being duped by Hitler, Bonhoeffer stood up against the rushing tide, and it cost him everything. He was hanged to death at Flossenburg concentration camp just a few days before American troops liberated it. And his work, Nachfolge, was countercultural. It is even today. We just call it something different, the cost of discipleship. In it, he writes, earthly goods are given to be used, not to be collected. In the wilderness, God gave Israel the manna every day, miraculous bread from heaven, uh, there in the morning dew. And they had no need to worry about food and drink, Indeed, if they kept any of the manna over until the next day, it went bad. In the same way, the disciple must receive their portion from God every day. If they store it up as a permanent possession, they spoil not only the gift, but themselves as well. For they set their heart on accumulated or amassing, or what's called American, wealth, and make it a barrier between themselves and God. Where our treasure is, there is our trust, our security, our consolation or comfort, and our God. Hoarding is 
idolatry. Instead, Christians use worldly goods as things which are perishing in the using. They use them with thankfulness and prayer to the creator of all good things. And get this, but all the while, they are free. It's funny how we come to worship and we sing about how all I need is you, Jesus. You're everything. And, and I, I, you know, completely abandoned, you can have it all, all those sorts of things that we promise and sing. And yet we rush back to our lives where we're amassing everything else other than God and clinging to everything else other than God. I mean, you don't see Jeff in here today. He's over with the kids, um, or at least that's what we told you. But what if, what if like, he went and just like, was burning all your houses down? right now. That'd be jacked up. Like, that would not be cool. But it might cause us to come face to face with the promises that we sing in this room. That Jesus, you are enough. I've got food. I've got clothes on my back. We use what we have for good and for the good of all. We have loose attachments, I think, is what Bonhoeffer is saying. Like, the things that, that we have in this world are, are good, right? as long as we keep loose attachments to them so that we are not owned by these material things. We are to be free. And in this way, the things that we own can never own us because they were never really ours to own in the first place. And of course, how silly it is that we amass and store up treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal catalytic converters and iPhones and funny little pieces of green paper with squiggly lines and numbers on them. No, Jesus, disciples of Jesus use what they have for good, and get this, for the good of all, giving and serving. I mean, can you follow Jesus and not give and serve? Because that's all he was about, giving and serving and loving, because I don't, I, don't, I don't really think so. And that's why Paul tells Timothy this, Timothy, guard what God has entrusted to you. Avoid godless, foolish discussions with those who oppose you with their so-called knowledge. Some people have wandered from the faith by following such foolishness. May God's grace be with you all. I think the heart of this chapter, considering everything in it, the whole kit and caboodle, everything but the kitchen sink, I think it's all about this right here. Guard what God has entrusted to you. And it's not money. Guard what God has entrusted to you, the life and responsibility of following Jesus. Guard it. Guard what God has entrusted to you, even when everything and the kitchen sink is going astray. Guard what God has entrusted to you. You know, though, you only guard what someone is trying to take from you. You only guard what someone is trying to take for you. And the truth is, we have an enemy who, it says in like 1 Peter 5, who is like a roaring lion, prowling around, looking for someone to devour. It says this, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. 
yeah, but on Monday, I'm at the Santa Barbara Zoo. And I'm pushing little baby Nora in the stroller. And Tara's with our other two, Zeke and Etta. They're feeding the, the giraffes. And I'm, I'm pushing little baby Nora in the stroller down over to the lion exhibit. I'm like, no one else is there. And I see, whoa, there's the, the fully grown male lion right there perched up against the glass. And it's got this flowing mane like my hair. And it's <laughs> golden rays of sunlight reflecting off its fur. And it's dead asleep. I'm like, this is not a lion. This is a house cat living by the beach. This is prime real estate here. And I, I'm looking at this lion and I push Nora right up to the glass. And I'm looking at the lion and I'm thinking about this verse, 1 Timothy or 1 Peter or whatever, like, oh, your, your enemy is like a roaring lion prowling around looking for someone to devour, right? I'm like, no, mm, this is a house cat. And you know what? Like, he is not prowling around looking for anyone to devour. He's not roaring. He's not looking to steal, kill, or destroy. He's looking like he's ready for a nap. And I don't know if you're like me, or I, I just get these crazy ideas in my head sometimes. Where all the time, all the time, man, people are telling me like, bro, you look so swole. Like you're like so ripped and so buff, man. Like, do you take steroids? And I'm like, no, I don't take steroids. Like what is it, like creatine, muscle milk? And I'm like, no. You lift weights? No. What is it? I'm like, I don't know. God's gift to earth. I don't know. Uh, strength, whatever. And uh, I'm thinking about how swole I am in front of this lion on the other side of the glass. And it occurs to me, I'm like, you know what? I think... I think I could take him. <laughs> if I were to scale this glass wall, climb into the lion exhibit, I, I bet I could beat up this house cat. No one's around. There's no cameras. I checked. And I'm about to climb in. Get up halfway. Now, I didn't want to do that in front of my daughter. I didn't want to beat up a lion or anything like that. I didn't climb in to the lion exhibit or else I'd be dead or in jail. But I think it's in those moments, right at that split second moment where we let our guard down, where we think this lion is not a lion, it's merely a house cat. And it's in those moments when we let our guard down just for a second that we get tricked. We get duped, we get caught up into a lifestyle that is not of God. We forget that our enemy is like a roaring lion, deceiving us like a house cat. And, and you know what? As soon as I was like climbing down from the, the glass wall, uh, the lion turned and looked at me. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, you could probably take me actually. <laughs> Big old fangs and muscles and I'm like, yeah, it's a good idea. I didn't climb in there. But it's in those moments where we compromise or justify or we try to bargain or, or we, well, it's all right, you know, or, or we give in, which is really just giving up. <laughs> but no, guard what God has entrusted to you. Bolster your defenses. And how do we do that? How do we, how do we shore up our, our ramparts? <laughs> well, we, we read the, the Bible. We pray 
we involve ourselves in community. We give and serve and, and walk forward in the life of discipleship. We don't just show up on Sunday, which I know you guys are awesome for doing that, but there's so much more to the Christian life for following Jesus, and it's all day, every day. We operate with the mindset that every moment of every day, you are fighting the good fight for the true faith. And the weapons that you use are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Guard what God has entrusted to you. Guard it with everything but the kitchen sink. How you treat others, how you teach, how you learn, how you deal with money, how you deal with love, how you have true godliness, true faith, true life, what you pursue, what you avoid, what's most important. Guard what God has entrusted to you by contentment, being satisfied, period, satisfied in God over and above anything else, any every circumstance or mood. Guard what God has entrusted to you, whether you're at the bottom rung economically of society or whether you can read and have food in the fridge. Don't think for a second that you can't make a tremendous impact in the kingdom of God, because how you live says everything about what you believe. So love and honor and may God's grace be with you all. So ends chapter six of 1 Timothy, and so ends the first letter. But don't think that the fight is over because this is merely the first round. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we ask that we would be changed by just maybe that one thing that we need to apply today. We've looked at maybe everything by the kitchen sink and there's so much more, but God, what is the one thing? I pray in this next moment that, that we wouldn't think about how, how sucky or how cool or how funny or how you know thought provoking the message was. I, I pray that we would think deeply about what we need to change and apply to our lives that you are putting on our hearts right now. We aren't about performance, God. We're about living for you. And heartfelt authenticity. So Jesus, do your work in our lives. Do the change that you wanna change.